All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together as family tonight. Thank you for giving us this place of worship. Thank you for a day like today that we can just relish all that you've done for us, things that we're not even aware of, Father, details that you know about we don't. You've protected us, you've loved us, kept us safe. Father, we're so grateful for your grace, your mercy, your love. We just pay attention, Father, these things are evidence all around us. We do pray for those in the congregation that can't be here, that want to be here, but for a multitude of reasons cannot be, Father. We just we miss them. We pray that you return them to the fold. We pray also, Father, for those in this world that are still lost without hope, that they be humbled. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this something to rejoice in. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Part 7, The Other Side of Grace. Um, Spirit's been on this topic for a while now, obviously. This week's blog, by the way, is a really encouraging one. So please make sure you take the time to read it or listen to it, or both, um, up here on the board. A grateful heart is a blessed heart. Amen? A grateful heart is a blessed heart. As of now, this evening, this message does appear to be the final installment in our mini-series titled The Other Side of Grace, but you know how that goes. We'll see. The instigating principle that prompted this series was grace-giving versus receiving, remember. Um, on Sunday, the Spirit gave us a couple of quick lists to ponder up here on the board guarantees to hang your hat on God loves us this is these are the things that we will always receive right these are the guarantees in our lives that God loves you salvation once secured is eternal as we like to say once saved always saved Christ rose from the dead this harkens back to Resurrection Sunday special. And believers are fundamentally changed at salvation. Those are, that's just a short list, you know, just a few things in the Bible that are absolutes, and we can hang our hats on them. And that's a beautiful thing. Now, these things are distinctly different than the following because they are clearly stated as doctrine in Holy Scripture. What about this list, though? Things that are not guaranteed. Your lifestyle. Earthly blessings. I don't know. Got a nice tea up here. Thank you, Monica, for your tea, for this tea. Could be gone tomorrow. I don't know. Could be gone tomorrow. This could be gone tomorrow. 
I know, hey, this could be gone tomorrow. Right? Everybody's like, that's not a blessing. It is if you're going to make someone sick. Anyways, long story. Your lifestyle or earthly blessings, they're not guarantees. There's no guarantee others will love you personally or even like you. Your good health, to whatever degree you have it, is not guaranteed. There are people in this congregation right now that can't be here because they're ill. They can't be here on a Sunday morning, even when it's not dark out, because they're ill. It's not a guarantee. Uh, and of course, in part one of this series, the Spirit made a quite a splash on the topic. This church and this pastor, we're not guaranteed to be here forever. And so you just learn to accept things when you have them. Uh, the key reminder in the series then has been to never take anything for granted. Never take anything for granted. And if you think about like Sunday's message, the backdrop of the first five or six parts of the series, it may be why God decides to pull a blessing away from you. Maybe you need to learn a lesson. It may be why God decides to pull a blessing away from you. Or maybe even allow the kingdom of darkness to rob you of it. Of it. And strictly speaking, to be fair to God, uh, God ordains that even, so that has to be at least a part of God's will to allow it. So he ordains even such things. The point is that unlike Job, we might be put to the test and fail miserably. We might fail miserably when put to the test. And that begs the question, why would God ever want his own children to fail. I mean, that's almost absurd by today's parental standards, right? My kid can never fail. My, I want my kid to have a trophy too. I want my kid to play umpteen minutes per game type thing uh, because it's, you know, I don't want them to suffer failure. And that's horrible parenting. Certainly, if we compare that type of parenting to our Father in Heavens, who not only allows us to fail, but prompts us even in certain ways. So again, why would God ever want his own children to fail? Simple. To teach us. To teach us. This week's blog surveys much of Psalm 107, uh, which highlights the fact that God can and does allow us to sink very low in order to train us up in mercy and grace. He allows us to sink very low at times to train us up in mercy and grace. Think about it. It starts even with salvation, right? Um, if you never confronted your, your own depravity, let's say, would you have ever repented and embraced God's offer of salvation. If you never confronted your own depravity, if you didn't get low, if you weren't pushed low 
If God never ordained your humiliation, bringing you low like that, if He never ordained your humiliation, what say you of your clear understanding of the gospel message, your positional sanctification? Where would you be if He didn't ordain pressing you low in humility? Same goes with experiential sanctification, right? Our Father in Heaven never allows us to sink to the depths of despair. Uh, how, if, he, if He never did that, how would, he, uh, how would we ever see the fullness of His mercy? Let me say it again. If our Father in Heaven, heaven never allows us to sink to the depths of despair, how would we ever see the fullness of His mercy? The point is that one necessitates the other. If we want to understand how far God can raise us out of something, out of despair, we have to be in a position of despair. And so he ordains that thing. One necessitates the other. We are not born nor born again with godly wisdom. So we must be taught it. We must be taught it. Even Job, as magnificent as he was, had to learn a very important lesson. Remember, God said, gird your loins. Remember that? Gird your loins, old boy. Right? Before we review the opening chapter uh, that we read together on Sunday, let's look at the closing one where Job admits to having had to be taught a lesson. Go to Job 42, verse 1. Job 42, verse 1. Job 42, verse 1. This, there was no one like him, so says God. No one like him in the land. And this is how it ended up with him. Job 42, verse 1. In other words, even he had stuff to learn. Job 42.1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with, without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, <clears throat> but now my, eyes, my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now I know that's like reading you know, the last few pages of a novel before be beginning the book, but sometimes it gives context. Right, uh, And besides, most of you know the story very well, given the fact that I taught a massive series. I want to say it was like 63 parts or something, or 67 parts on Job, probably about a good eight years ago, nine, ten years ago. I don't even know. But most of you know the context of Job. Uh, the long story short, Job learned a valuable lesson. 
even though he was blameless and upright and there, would, there was no one else like him. And yet he learned a very valuable lesson. Apparently, it was a hard road to travel, given that God allowed Satan to personally destroy most aspects of Job's life. Nonetheless, God ordained it. God ordained it. He even gave us a little insight into how it came about. He told Satan, hey, have you thought about Job? You, you know, if you were Job and you be like, hey, don't be doing me any favors, Lord. Right? I don't want that creature on me. But God knew better. God knew that Job needed to learn something. That he would, in the end, repent in dust and ashes. Say, Aloud, I didn't know. I thought I knew. I got a little mouthy, a little chirpy. Now I know. So I repent in dust and ashes. And so God ordained that thing in Job's life. Now let's quickly review. Go to Job 1.1. 1, 1. Job 1, verse 1. Job 1.1. 1, 1. So let's review this. This is from Sunday. I'll go quickly. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Go to verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? In other words, haven't you blessed his socks off and there's a reason why he's fearful of you and you know respects you? It's because you gave him so much. He, in other words, he's a fair-weather uh, friend. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So he throws down the gauntlet. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. In other words, not yet. Don't affect his body, his health. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. As the story goes, Satan destroys Job's livestock, his servants, and his children, all of them. And afterwards, Job responded wonderfully. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. As most of you know, the story gets even worse for Job. If that wasn't enough, God says, go ahead, affect him. Just don't kill him. Remember, he's got boils all over his skin. He's, 
He's using like a, the, the piece of an, a, a, a pot, a clay pot. He's scraping the boils. It's a mess. It gets worse. And then it gets worse than that. So God allows Satan to bring him really, really low to the brink of utter despair. And at his potential lowest, or he's getting really, really low, the one person that could have helped him, his wife, utters her famous words. Look at 2 verse 9, chapter 2 verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. She was basically acting on behalf of, you know, tempting him on behalf of Satan in that point. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So even then, as an incredible example of faith, Job holds up under incredible pressure. And that's not even the end of the story, is it? Hardly, given the book is 42 chapters long. The vast majority of the story is about how even Job's friends, though seemingly well-intentioned, stand against him, adding even more pressure to the situation. If he wasn't feeling alone enough after his wife said what she said, now his friends come along and say, dude, you messed up. There's got to be a reason for this. To be fair to the story, at this point, Job does show signs of cracking. Um, and cracking implies what? Imperfections in the vessel. Think about that. A vessel that cracks has imperfections in it, right? And Job shows signs of cracking. I mean, a perfect person would never show signs of cracking. The only example of this we'll ever have is Jesus Christ, of course. So what does this mean for Job and the rest of us? Well, it means that our faith must be put to the test in order for us to realize that it isn't perfect. Our faith must be put to the test in order for us to realize that it isn't perfect. And when we realize it isn't perfect, we must, in humility, seek to understand it confess it, and pray to God for sanctification, for more faith then. And so this is a grace gift, right? But you would have never gotten there if God didn't ordain pressing you low. In other words, we must learn our lessons in humility. We must learn our lessons but the only way this ever happens is for us to realize the need for sanctification in the first place. Otherwise, we, don't, we think we have nothing to learn. In other words, if, if, if we think we're already hot stuff, we'll remain blind to the truth about ourselves. We won't take the time, like some of you, I hope, all of you, I I'm, I'm pray, but I hope all of you, are doing right now. You wouldn't take the time to self-examine. Think about Job this way, too. Since we're on him, he was an amazing human. 
But, you ready? But, who's to say that Job, being so blameless and upright, didn't suffer from a little arrogance? Who's to say? God would know. Who's to say he didn't suffer from a little arrogance? Didn't we learn that in chapter 42? He admits it. I thought I knew what I was talking about. Here I am with you, trying to tell you your business. Who am I to be questioning you? That is, by definition, arrogance. If we question the sovereign, holy God of the universe, that is, by definition, arrogance. So who's to say that Job, you know, didn't suffer from a little arrogance? Who's to say that Job didn't actually need to see his, how his own faith would hold up under pressure. Maybe there was a time he's like, yeah, I am blameless and upright. I'm pretty snazzy guy. I'm not saying he was like that. I'm just saying. In his own way. Obviously, he needed to learn. God knew it. God ordained it. So, who's to say that Job didn't actually need to see how his faith would hold up under pressure? Who's to say that Job could foresee the cracks in his faith once Satan began attacking, attacking him. Who's to say he had that kind of foresight about himself? Apparently, Job had to learn a big lesson about himself. Apparently. And as we just read in the final chapter of the book, after his name, Job had to repent in dust and ashes. You don't have to repent if you weren't wrong. Just saying. So, the point the Spirit's making is that we all need to be humbled in order to see our own weaknesses. Otherwise, we can just make caught blanc assumptions, right? I'm, I'm like, I'm all set. My faith is strong. Right? And then the first little bit of something comes along and you're worse than Job. And you say, man, I guess my faith really wasn't that good after all. I guess I got a lot of growing up to do. I guess I got a lot of learning to do. So that's the point. We all need to be humbled in order to see our own weaknesses. So low times in our, in our lives are the times God uses to, to use the metallurgical analogy, annealed, you know what that means? Like he adds heat and the molecules sort of line up. I know that's kind of like nerdy, but when you anneal steel, the molecules at the microscopic level, they line up, they get stronger. Like the steel itself gets stronger. We call that annealing. It happens under fire, under heat. Things just sort of iron out at the molecular level. So low times in our lives, when God uses these times to anneal our faith, to, to iron it out a little bit, right? To strengthen it out, to, to orient those molecules in, in a more, in a way, you know, that's uh, pleasing to the Lord. To make his critical point in such a way that it's undeniable to us. He says, do you see it now? You're like this. This is, this is typical, right? He goes like this. Uh, do you see it now? I'm, I'm good. Uh, do you see it now? <laughs> nope. <laughs> all right, I see it, I see it, right? He does that. And the slower learner you are, the f- you know what I'm getting at, right? The, this wisdom is you, you start getting it right up here. 
You see her again? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> see her again? Yep, 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 yep. In a perfect world, you get you self-correct, right? Not going to do that again. Been there, done that. Nope, not going to do that. But you got to go through those low times so that it's undeniable to us what the issue is. God ordains despair in our lives to prove his point about our faith. For if we had perfect faith, why would we ever despair? That's a good question, isn't it? Again, God ordains despair in our lives to prove his point about our faith. For if we had perfect faith, why would we ever despair at all? That's a good question. So on Sunday, to help drive this home, we took pause to ponder the practical application of what we've been learning about with all of this. Um, the truth is that God often removes certain blessings from our lives to, you know, check our attitudes. To check our attitudes about the blessings themselves. He said, all right, you, you, do you like it? Oh, do, do you like that plant, jo uh, uh, Jonah? I'm going to kill it. Oh, do you like do you like that blessing? So any one of you, do you like that blessing in your life? Okay, I'm going to take it away. I want to see how you respond when I take it away. Because in perfect faith, you'd have what, like Paul said, I've learned to go with and without. It doesn't matter. Well, let's see how you respond then, because it's really easy to say, you know, I have such wonderful faith when everything's going well. Isn't that what Satan said? Haven't you put a hedge around him? Haven't you blessed his socks off? Take it all away, he'll curse you to your face. He should have been talking to all of us. Hmm. So here's the critical question from Sunday up here on the board. Are, your, are our blessings yours to demand or are they God's to give? Are blessings yours to demand or are they God's to give? I mean, the extreme example, you know, even like family. Some, you know, we, sometimes we lose family at an early age, and it's really, 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 really sad. Do we have the right to question God? Nope. The Lord give, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? So the question, are blessings yours to demand, or are they God's to give? Here's the quick answer in scriptural form. We've got to synthesize just a tad up here on the board. Psalm 50, 12, part B, and Psalm 50, 14, part A. 50, 12, B says, For the world in its fullness is mine, says the Lord. It's mine. Okay? In other words, everything's mine. <laughs> right? I gave you a life. Let's, let's go get the brass tacks here. Everything you, you have, every blessing that you lay claim to, it's really mine. And then the second verse, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving then. Okay, well, if everything's yours, Lord, then thank you. Thank you for the time you gave it to me. It's yours anyways. I mean, it's funny. People are like, no, that's mine. I bought it with my own money. You don't have any money that's yours. That house is not yours. My house is paid for, thank you very much. God owns the house, dummy. He owns the car, he owns your clothes, he owns everything. And so you just say thank you, because it's all like on loan, right? 
We don't take anything to the grave. It's all on loan. So what do we say then? What's the other option? Thank you, Lord. Oh, you need it for someone else? Thank you. Thank you for the time that I had it. Again, are your blessings yours to demand or are they God's to give? The perspective is something Job certainly understood, uh, this perspective. Uh, remember, Job's faith on this aspect, or this aspect of his faith, faith was firm. He's the one who said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. His faith cracked because he couldn't reconcile. If you get right down to it, those, you know, 40-odd chapters or 38 chapters in between, 39 chapters in between, um, is when his faith cracked because he couldn't reconcile what was really going on. Right? He couldn't understand why God was allowing satanic attacks like that. And that's when his faith cracked. And some of you might relate to that. Maybe you really can pass that first test. Oh, I've lost a house before. And I was like, meh. I've lost this. Meh. You know. But what happens when you don't understand why? What happens when you get pressed so hard in such just the right way? That you say, ah, Lord, I don't understand. Why would you do this to me? You know how badly I want this thing in my life. Why would you take my child, Lord? Would your faith crack? Job lost ten of them. Job seemed to understand the following up here on the board. Self-induced misery. It's when we think we have the right to demand such things as permanent blessings that we place ourselves in bondage to poor expectations. The right expectation is the previous slide, which is, Lord, it's all yours, it's on loan anyways, thank you. That's the right expectation. You don't focus on when he takes it away or when you don't have it. You focus on the fact that you did have it. You focus on the time that you do have that blessing. And when you focus that way, you're set free. If you have any other expectations, you're in bondage to them. So reflect on Sunday. The Spirit asks you to consider the top three most important things in your life outside of your relationship with God, strictly speaking. He asks you to think about what are the top three most important things in your life. And then he asks you what you do if he took away all three of them at once. If he just said, I'm going to take all three of them away from you. Boom, gone. Wiped out. Boom. All at once. What would you do if your faith was put to the test like Job's? What would you do? And what would it, more importantly, what would it show you about your faith? What would it reveal to you about your faith. Some of you already know what you'd do, right? Because you're honest about your faith. I know there's certain things in my life that he took away. If he took away, I would, I would, he and I would have like a talk, <laughs> right? You know, I'd be like, Lord, right? Like I would get it, but I'm not saying I wouldn't have cracks. Not at all. Um, what would you do? If your faith was put to the test like Job's, 
the spirits ask probing questions like this in order to foster good perspective, such as the perspective on the board. It's when we think we have the right to demand such things as permanent blessings that we place ourselves in bondage to poor expectations. And he's just trying to deliver us from this. He's trying to sanctify us. And it's interesting because this is where confession comes into play again. Remember, saying the same thing as the Lord. This is where confession comes into play again. To put it plainly, the question is, are you a spoiled, entitled brat when it comes to God's grace blessings? Are you spoiled? Are you entitled? I mean, I am. Right? Anybody else? I am. I'm totally spoiled. Tammy's the only other one, apparently. Must have an unbelievably horrible household. Don't ever visit us. <laughs> you ruined our rug! Take your shoes off! Oh, Lord! <laughs> right? No, seriously, though. Are you spoiled and entitled? Or do you abide in the very sphere of gratitude? Because that's what that, those two verses in Psalms were all about, Psalm 50, right? Was to, to remind you that everything is the Lord's and that you should just be grateful. Just say thank you and be done with it. Do you abide in the very sphere of gratitude? That's why the Spirit prompted me to write this week's blog, A Grateful Heart is a Blessed Heart. You see what he's doing? He's saying, I want you to be grateful. We've got to get past all this garbage so you can be grateful, so that you can be blessed. The bigger picture the Spirit's been developing over the course of this seven-part series is up here on the board. Your joy is intrinsic to your abiding in the sphere of God's love. Your joy is intrinsic to your abiding in the sphere of God's love. As we've been learning from Holy Scripture and lately through the practical examination of Job and therefore ourselves, there's a reason why God demands that we abide in His love. There's a reason for it. Why does He demand it? Why doesn't He just, you know, like highly suggest it? No, He demands that we abide in His love. It's because his desire is as follows. Up here on the board, synthesize these two verses now. 1 Timothy 2.4 God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Of course, he is the truth. Saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then second, 1 John 4.8 Anyone who does not, know, uh, does not love does not know God because God is love. So if we synthesize these two verses, what we can conclude is to know God is to know love. To know God, which is his desire, is to know love. Because guess what? He is love. So if you know him, you know God. Or you know love, excuse me. To know God is to know love. God wants you to know him. 
the truth itself, so that you may know love, for God is love. And what I'm describing, of course, is the sphere of God. He says, come to me. Let me teach you about myself. Let me show you my ways, because naturally you're a train wreck. Your ways are not your, my ways, you know, my thoughts are not your thoughts. You need, I need to teach you. Say, I'm good, I'll just, just, I'll just read my Bible. You say, I just read it, Lord. I've got all wisdom. No, you don't. Squash. You think you have faith, but faith, as I've taught many, many times, faith has to be consummated. It has to be put through the crucible. It has to have fire to anneal it, to, 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 to put it through the, its wares, right? So that you have confidence in it. So that you know that it's actually there. Because let's face it, the first few times we go up against, you know, God's heavy hand, we fail. And we say, man, I really thought I had more faith than that. I don't know. That's why I put you to the test. No false pretenses here. I want you to understand. Because I want you to know me. Because if you know me, then you know love. Joy, again, our, pre our previous principle up here on the board, your joy is intrinsic to your abiding in the sphere of God's love. Stated the way I stated it on Sunday, since God desires uh, for you, his child, to have this joy, he commands you to abide in his love. That's where the command comes from. Because he commands it because that's what he wants. He commands you to abide in his love because that's what he wants for you, because he loves you. He wants the best for you. Up here on the board, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, where righteousness is, if you want to get there, you have to obey his commands. You have to be right or be righteousness, right? Or be righteous. At your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. God demands that we learn, learn, and learn some more. Whether it be directly from Holy Scripture, which is pretty much what we're doing this evening, which is wonderful, or as they say, learn from our mistakes. Whatever the learning happens to be or how it transpires, God's will is that we come to know the truth, which is tantamount to saying, to know Him. And in doing so, we arrive at the sphere of God and we know and abide in His love. In other words, what He's saying is it's impossible for you to abide in my love if you don't know me. John talks about that in his epistle, right? If you don't know me, you don't know love, because I'm love. So to, if you want to really want to know love, then you have to know me. And that's why, in a sad way, you hear people say, oh, I don't need Christ. I don't need to be saved, so-called saved. I don't need any of that stuff. I love. I love. Well, you don't know God. So that's certainly not the supreme love that I understand or that I'm learning about, that I'm endeavoring to aspire to. That's not the same love that I read about in the Bible. Hmm. 
So concentrate on this. The great trap in this lifetime, which is, you know, Satan in the kingdom, dark, the kingdom of darkness's favorite, it seems, is to make the very grave mistake of thinking that your joy will be maximized with temporal blessings. Especially in America, right? Where, you know, we're rich. You might say, I'm not rich. You're rich. You trust me, you're rich. I don't even know how many emails I get daily begging for support just so that a person can have a Bible. Help me with my orphanage. Help me with my new church I'm trying to plant. Help me, help me, help me, right? So Satan in the kingdom of darkness, it seems their favorite device is to get people to make the grave mistake of thinking that their joy will be maximized with temporal blessings. And so just a little side note, a little side doctrine here. Nothing fresh, just a renewer for us. What we call, what we call temporal blessings may not actually be blessings. That's a little side note for perspective's sake. What we call temporal blessings may not actually be blessings, at least not for as long as we are in bondage to them. Maybe the easiest example to pick on is your lifestyle, which, let's face it, as Americans, it's comprised of a lot of stuff, including creature comforts. I bet you if half of you stopped short at the red light down here, a bunch of candy wrappers and french fries would come flying out from underneath the seat. Right? Who says you got to eat out? Who says you got to have candy? You know what I'm getting at? A little roll, you're like, oh, look at that. Ooh. Three-day roll. <laughs> I brushed that one right off. Who says you got to have candy? You follow? We have a lot of stuff. We have so much stuff, about one quarter of the Swansea Mall is being retrofitted as a storage tank. Little electronic storage bins. Because people have too much stuff. Sounds like that parable, doesn't it? I'll just, big, I'll just build bigger barns. That's America. What if you have to work to the point where maintaining said lifestyle is to the detriment of your relationship with the Lord? What if you work long hours that preclude you from honestly focusing on and learning from the Word of God? What if you are on that awful treadmill the kingdom of darkness has set up for you called, quote, success? You're on your way, buddy. What say you of the word blessings? In this context, if so-called blessings have uh, distanced you from abiding in the sphere of God. I'm going to say that again. What say you of the word blessings in this context, if so-called blessings have distanced you from abiding in the sphere of God? 
Again, that's just a little sidebar on what I call in my message here the great trap of thinking that your joy will be maximized with temporal blessings. Here's the principle from Sunday up here on the board. Our joy made, uh, made full. God never says that we are to derive our joy from temporal blessings alone. That is a worldly trap. Our joy is transcendent. Go to Colossians 3.1. Our joy is transcendent. God never promises that. He never says, hey, tie everything you've got to temporal blessings. Right? Why? Well, let's read Colossians 3. Colossians 3.1. If then, Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on your stuff. No, it doesn't say that. Oh, my bad. I got the, uh, the hack translation. The one I got at the Swansea Mall. All right? Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, up here on the board. God never says that we are to derive our joy from temporal blessings alone. That is a worldly trap. Our joy is transcendent. I'm thinking about that old quippy thing that I used to say. It's not the blessing. It's what you think of the blessing. Right? Because one person can get a certain blessing from God and be overjoyed and then have the right attitude about it. Another person could have it and be in bondage to it. So it's what you think of the blessings. Learn this point on the board, though. Learn it well and keep on learning. As Paul wrote up here on the board, Ephesians 5, 10 through 11 reads, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What was the Lord's desire? 1 Timothy 2, 4. That all come to the knowledge of Him. All saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Him. That was his desire. It's the same thing Paul's saying. What's pleasing to him? That we come to know him. Why? Because when we get to know him, we understand and we get to know and abide in love. And that's where a good father wants his children to be, in love. Because in that love, they're protected. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, starting with yourself. Starting with yourself, it's so easy to point fingers. So, so easy. In other words, identify the trappings of this world and avoid them. And not just in word. 
They'll say, preach it, brother. Indeed. You know, when no one's watching, right? That's the true test of integrity, right? You do the same thing when no one's watching. You do the right thing when no one else is looking, right? Not just in word, but in deed. Avoid the trappings of this world. We are children of the holy, sovereign God of the universe. And I got a, I got a lot of feedback on this. We ought to what? Act like it. I had a little rant on Sunday if you were here. Act like it. Seriously, act like it. Why is that out of bounds nowadays for Christianity? Because it's, 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 uh, Christianity is not just founded on a, a false, watered-down gospel nowadays. But if you were to ask the average Christian what, what even, don't even say, do you know what experiential sanctification is because that's not a word or a phrase in the Bible, so you can't pin that on them. But do they understand what sanctification is after salvation? What? Sanctify who? Get out of the way. You're blocking my 70-inch television. Right? What? Sanctification? I have no idea what you're talking So if you have no, if you call yourself a Christian, you have no idea what even sanctification is, how would you ever act the part? How would you ever obey God's command to not just be a hearer who deludes themselves, but an actual doer? How would you ever do that? It's impossible. But you know better. You have been well taught. I know because it's come from this pulpit. So act like it. Not just this, but this. Walk in a way or a manner worthy of the Lord. That's Holy Scripture. I don't know why that's, I do know why it's out of bounds, but it's gross that it's out of bounds nowadays. I'd probably be tagged as a religious person. Like, oh, he's a religious, you know. No, no, you could just sit in your ivory tower, turn your, and look down your noses at everybody else and say, well, I know. Well, that's great that you, that you know, but how are you doing? How are you abiding? Or do you just know? Because even the Pharisees just knew. So act like it. If we're children of the holy, sovereign God of the universe, shouldn't we act like it? That's not out of bounds at all. Again, do I say this religiously or with any condemnation in my voice? Not at all. Not at all. I say this vehemently because I love you. And I want you in that sphere. I want you protected. I say this so you will understand this point up here on the board regarding transcendence. I don't want you to be stuck in this world. Do you understand? I don't want your eyes to be against Colossians 3. I don't want your eyes to be on the things of this earth. I want your eyes to be up on the things above. Transcendent. Who cares? God gives you a blessing. Enjoy it. You get a nice little ice cream cone? Enjoy. When it's gone, don't complain. You got, a, you got some time with some people that you love? Enjoy it. If, if and when he takes them away, say thank you for that time I had with those people. It's as simple as that. 
And that's what's so freeing about the truth, because that's the truth of the matter. It doesn't really matter what goes on down here other than that we do what's pleasing to the Lord. And what's really pleasing to Him is that you come to know Him. And so that you're in love with Him. In love, right? This is love. God is love. In love with Him. Abiding in Him. That's what's pleasing to Him. Not whether or not you have this or that or whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you have the right perspective, you transcend it all. When you mature to the point spiritually that your joy is divorced from temporal blessings, then you are delivered from the self-induced prison that most Christians seem to live in. My final point, our previous point, up here on the board, your joy is intrinsic to your abiding in the sphere of God's love. So it makes total sense why he gives us lessons like this. It makes total sense why he commands us to obey him. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us righteousness to orient to. Thank you for giving us commands to obey. For we know that that brings us closer to you, closer to love. Thank you for allowing us to be in love right there with you, Father. We're just so grateful for that. Thank you for protecting us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls. May we be delivered and sanctified by it. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.